0: You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com.
1: Thank you. One of these days we'll be doing that for Mars. I know, yeah, sooner. How many of you are signing up? <laughs> sooner rather than
0: later. I know there's a few of you on the Mars team. Well, good morning. <laughs> Whether you're a guest this morning or you haven't been here for a while, I'm not going to call you Slacker today. I'll lay off of you. For those of you online, welcome. Glad that you are... Slackers. Uh, <laughs> slack, slackers, Yeah. Glad that you are tuning back in. We are uh, picking up where we left off a couple weeks ago in our series called All Systems Go. Uh, two weeks ago, prior to Easter, we opened with the doctrine of Scripture. And, and we asked the question, how do we know that we can trust the Bible? How do we know that we can really look to the Bible for objective truth. And and we examine the external evidences, right? The manuscripts that we have, the number, the sheer number of them is is staggering. The accuracy of the manuscripts and how historically these things were adopted and recognized as canon, as actual inspired revelation from God. And then James dealt with the internal evidence. And and he talked about just that, that scripture is revelation, that it reveals information. It reveals a, a great many things. And and we did that last week because before we can ask what the Bible says, we really need to know that we can trust it, That's right. that we can look to it as our objective source of truth. And, and based on the evidence, based on what we looked at, we came to the conclusion that we can, that overwhelmingly our texts are more reliable historically than any other world religion uh, out there. Now that begs the question that we're going to be then covering starting this week and on for the rest of the series, which is what does the Bible reveal? If the Bible is revelation, what is it revealing? And as it turns out, it reveals a lot. It reveals a lot of things. And each week, we're going to cover one of the doctrines that the Scriptures unfold. But this week, we're going to begin with uh, what is the foundational doctrine of the Christian faith, the doctrine of God. In other words, we're going to ask the question, who is God? does the Scripture? How does the Scripture reveal God's identity? What, what we're gonna ask questions like, what is God like? What characteristics does the scripture describe of God? And, and we're gonna just gonna give you a heads up right here, warning up front. We're gonna give you a lot of information this morning. It's gonna be a little bit like drinking out of a fire hydrant. Was the
1: parting of the Red Sea a miracle? This will be a miracle. This, if will, we get be a, this. this will be a miracle if we
0: get through this. If you'll just give us about two and a half we're hours, do we'll God get it. In
1: four- uh
0: we're going to do it in 45 minutes. There's lots of info here. So here's what I want to ask you to do, all right? Take notes. Take some notes. You're sitting in... Look, you you probably check text messages in Facebook, if we're being honest. It's church. We can be honest, okay? Uh, you have a phone or a pen. Take some notes. You Dig in. you got the outline online, too. You, you got the outline online. Because listen, if you're a Christian, this is something that you need to know. We need to know who God is. Otherwise, check this out. We risk understanding him incorrectly, and then what we're doing is we're actually following a false god. Amen. So, so this morning we're going to begin. James is going to kick us are off with the existence of God. Don't, don't argue. Finish me, because you are <laughs> the most long-winded of us two. There is. Okay. I took a whole three and a half <laughs> minutes to we're do good. This, this. You welcome. did good. I did great. You did good. Absolutely. Let's we'll see if you can be short on
1: the rest of your stuff. We'll see. you got to say we'll today. See. Yeah. I'm going to have to be. I'm going to have to be. You're going to have to be. We're like an old married couple. That's right. (laughs) That would be uh, illegal. It would be. I'm twice your age. That's true. Uh, Actually, we're going to be, for the next 10 or 12 weeks, we're going to be taking key doctrinal concepts in the Scripture and just unpacking them for you. So hold on this morning because we're going to talk about the doctrine of God. And we begin in this subject with the existence of God. You see, the Bible never just assumes that its readers are going to believe in God. It never assumes that. In fact, the Bible makes arguments. It, it does apologetics, if you will, for God's existence, and it makes a case for His existence. And in so doing, what the Bible does is it include, it concludes that since there is external evidence for the, the existence of God, then no one has an excuse for, not, for unbelief. No one has an excuse for saying there is no God because the Scripture itself argues for the existence of God outside of the things that the Scripture says specifically about the nature and the character of God. Now, when God's Word is doing that, what it's doing is it is appealing to what we call general revelation. And that is revelation that is obvious and is available for everyone. Special revelation is God's revelation of Himself in the Scripture and His revelation of Himself in Christ. But there is general revelation that is just in all of creation that everyone in all through all history has had access to. So even without the special revelation of God, no one can stand before God and say, I have an excuse for not believing that there was a creator God. And so the psalmist says in Psalm 14:1: the fool has said in his heart, There is no God. He says it's foolish to say that because if you look around just in in creation, you will see. Now, historically, apologists, which are people who give a defense of the faith, apologetics has referred to three arguments that have not been created outside of the Bible. The Bible itself gives them, gives these arguments, just doesn't call them this. And so I want to talk about for a moment the evidence for the existence of God that the Bible talks about that is not about His specific revelation in Scripture and in Christ. And first of all, there is the cosmological evidence. When you look at the cosmos, which is the Greek word for world of all things, in all the created order, in all of its entirety, the Bible itself says that you can look at creation and see the evidence of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, "...for since the creation of the world..." His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen. So from the very creation itself, the psalmist, as he gazes into the heavens, he says in Psalm 19.1, the heavens are declaring, they're right now doing it, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. If you just look at it, He's saying, just look. And the heavens are saying, there is a God. Now, this is the lowest level of evidence, okay? The cosmological evidence. The next one, though, begins to build upon it. And that's what we'll call the teleological evidence. These are big college words, okay, that philosophers and apologists like to use. But the cosmological evidence says that you can look at creation itself in all of its macrocosmic greatness and you can see there is someone behind it. And then teleology comes behind it and says not only can you see that it's there but when you look at it and really inspect it you can see that there is intricate design in it. And design always indicates a designer. The word teleos is the Greek word that means order or completion. In other words, the cosmos is not random because not only do we see its vastness, but as we gaze into it, we see that there is incredible order and design and complexity in everything about the universe. The second law of thermodynamics is one that many of you are perhaps somewhat familiar with from from college courses or even high school. But the second law of thermodynamics basically in one essence says this, that nothing moves from chaos into order. In other words, order does not come out of chaos. It's like if you put marbles on, a, on a, a plate here and you put them in order and you start shaking them, they will never go back into that order because out of chaos, order cannot come. In fact, what happens, the second law says, is that ultimately there is entropy and everything descends from order into chaos. So here's the interesting thing. If the universe was born in chaos, then there would never be order. There could never be order according to the second law of thermodynamics, which is observed in every other aspect of created order. So what is this order? Well there's whole lots of illustrations of it. Let me just give you one. How about photosynthesis? The rain falls, what happens? The sun warms the what? The seed, the ground. The seed germinates, it sprouts, it grows, it provides food so that we can eat it, the body digests it, Absorbs its nutrients, the, c- the blood carries it all through, the bo- all through the body. You mean out of nothing, that kind of order? And I gave a very simplistic overview. How about the order of the planets? Our planet rotates so consistently that we can tell time by it before we even had iPhones. As a matter of fact, it makes a full rotation. Every 24 hours you can set your clock by it. And then our earth orbits so perfectly around the sun that we get our four seasons. In Texas, we only have hot and hotter. But most places have four seasons because it is so perfectly consistent. In fact, in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas were seeking to the worshipers of Zeus about the true and the living God. And and Paul makes this teleological argument. He says he didn't leave himself without witness. God has not left himself without a witness. In that he did give you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul is making an, an argument to not only the cosmology, but to the order of how things are set up. Things happen all through our universe with perfect order and consistency. As a matter of fact, it happens with such perfect consistency. This has always fascinated me. I always wanted to learn how to do this. That ancient mariners, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, before GPS satellites and all that stuff, were able to navigate, the, the, be surrounded by thousands of miles of the vast ocean. But by simply looking at the stars or looking at the sun and looking at the horizon and u- using this instrument, were able to calculate their exact location on planet Earth. Hundreds of years ago, mariners knew how to do it. They could be in thousands of miles of ocean. And with that simple, archaic way of measuring location, they could measure within one mile of where they were on planet Earth. Isn't that incredible? So consistent is everything in the universe that they would literally stake their lives upon those Measurement. So there's, there's cosmology, there's teleology, which then ultimately leads us to the anthropological evidence. Here's where we come to the ultimate apex of the cosmos and creation, which is mankind. God created a cosmos. He created it with this perfect order that we're able to observe, and then He topped it all off with the apex of His creation, which is mankind. And as science has advanced... We are able to look not only on the external parts of the body, as ancient man was able to do, and see symmetry and order and design, but now with scientific advancement, we're able to look inside, deep into the atomic level of the body, into the chemistry makeup, and what we find is incredible complexity upon complexity upon complexity. One uh, biochemist, Michael Behe, wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box, the Irreducibly complex biochemical machines. But this professor is so smart that he uses a very simple tool to help you understand what irreducible complexity is. You know what this is? I hate Mises to pieces, right? This is an irreducibly complex machine. It only has four parts. But all four parts have to be in operation for you to get any value to catch any Mises at all. It has a platform. But the platform can't catch a Mises can it? It has an arm. This is where the, the gold is right here, right? But platform and an arm can't catch Mises. And then you've got, you got a spring, but a spring platform and an arm can't catch Mises. But then you've got that final piece that brings it all together, that gives it any operation at all. And this morning I hit my thumb trying to do this, so I'm not going to do it. And that is the locking arm. And when you have all four pieces together and they are working, then you have a mousetrap. But up until that point, you have no function of the mousetrap at all. Now, evolution says that complexity has come out of this gradual, over time, improvement of the organism, each time making it better. But what if that process is irreducibly complex? Then you do not have You can have a a platform for a hundred million years, but until you start adding those, until those other parts are all there in place, you don't have any function at all. And our bodies are filled with all of these irreducibly complex biochemical machines like our sight, which over a 100, over 100 biochemical things have to happen almost instantaneously for you to be able to see, to hear.
0: For you, is it only 50? Is it only
1: 50 things that have to happen? I'm just curious. (laughs) Oh, baby. Woo-hoo. And then we have our hearing. Then we have our heartbeat. That move. Listen, our heart moves 12,000 miles of blood in a linear fashion per day. Over 1 million barrels of blood during an averaging time. Uh, a lifetime and it is self-charging mm. and then you go even to the cilia in the lungs it gets all this stuff that you you know hack and spit and those loogies that you spit out that's because of the cilia in your lungs that are clearing out those are irreducibly complex biochemical machines are you with us here see general revelation in itself without even the scripture screams Designer. That's right. And then we come to God's nature, and we're going to do 10 characteristics of God's nature. Here we go. Gear up. So just like the
0: Bible doesn't assume its readers accept the existence of God, it also does not assume that its readers understand the nature of God. Historically, the people of God are always surrounded by nations with very different religious perspectives. And almost all of them have a pantheon of gods, multiple gods, if you will. There are very few monotheistic religions in the ancient world. And so the Bible clarifies the nature of God in a very specifically Christian way. What is God like? How can he be described? How does the, the scripture describe him? So here are ten. Number one, God is one. God is one. In the scripture, there is no pantheon of gods. God is singular. There is only one God. Now, there's two terms that you need to know that we use to talk about various different types of religious perspectives. The first one is polytheism. Polytheism, it's a compound word, poly meaning many, and theism meaning the belief in a supreme God. Being. So a polytheistic religion would be one that holds a belief in many gods and many supreme beings. And then the second term is monotheism. It's also a compound word, mono meaning one, theism we just defined. So monotheism then is the belief in one supreme being. Now scripture teaches a monotheistic faith, that God is Singular Deuteronomy 6, 4. God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's very interesting, actually. In, in Mark's gospel, one of the Jewish scribes, one of the opponents of Jesus, comes to Jesus, and he says in Mark 12, 28, What commandment is the foremost of all? He's trying to trap Jesus. What commandment is the, is the best, is the most important? And Jesus answers him in the next verse, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one. It's the first thing he says. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.4. Isaiah 44.6, God says, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me, check this out, there is no God. There is none other. Yahweh is one. God is not plural. He is singular. Now, why does this matter? Well, it matters because if there is only objectively one God, that means that anytime time our devotion is focused on something else, it reveals we're not really monotheistic.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That we are chasing after another false god. Practically, we're living polytheistically. We may say we're monotheistic, but practically, we're living our lives polytheistically. And God says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's in the, that's in the top ten, by the way, the ten commandments. So, I, I, God is one. Can we establish that? Now, I know what some of you are thinking, though. Some of you are thinking, well, if God is only one... What about the Trinity? That, that, becomes, that becomes very confusing, right? And that brings us to our second one. God is not only one, but God is also triune. So some of you are, are, are probably wrestling with this. How can God be one, but also be triune? Well, for start, we have, to, we have to define what triune actually means. What does triune mean? It means consisting of three in one. That's what tri, it's a triune. Unity. That's what triune comes from, that God is one, that he's one God, but that he exists eternally in three separate, distinct persons. There's one essence, but three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I understand right up front, I'm just going to say this, that understanding the triune nature of God is a very difficult task for a finite mortal mind, okay? But let me just walk through the scriptures here and give you some some scriptural evidence of all three of these things. That way we don't have to argue about it. We know... You better run through the scripture. I will. I'm going to run through it. I'm going to do about as fast as you just did. How about that? (laughs) So let's talk about God the Father first. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 9, he says, "And and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. He is identifying God as the Father. Isaiah 64, 8. This is actually a verse that one of the songs we sang this morning is based off of. Isaiah says, but now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. James 1, 7 says, every good gift and perfect gift is from above coming down from who? The Father father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The Father is God. God. But then that brings us to our second point. The Son is also God. God the Son. Of course, the cornerstone verse for this is John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14 goes on to tell us who that Word is. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 8.58. Jesus says, Before Abraham was... I am, and he takes the covenant name of God, Yahweh, upon himself, I am. And we know that's what he meant because the Jews understood that. They picked up stones and immediately tried to stone him. Paul in Colossians 2.9 says, For in him, talking about Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus in Revelation 22.13 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The scriptures teach that the Father is is God in heaven, but that the Son is also God, and that they 're not the same person they're both fully God, but they're distinct persons who relate to one another. What about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's maybe a, a little more difficult to uh, to talk about as a distinct person, but let me give you four quick reasons for why we Believe that the the, the Holy Spirit belongs in the Trinity as a part of the Godhead. Number one, He's included with the Father and the Son in Jesus' baptismal commission. So in in Matthew 28 19, when, when Jesus gives the Great Commission, He tells us to go and make disciples of all nations. And what does He tell us? To baptize in the name of the Father and the Son. And what? And the Holy Spirit. So why are we baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit doesn't belong within? the Godhead. Number two, he has equally offered prayer with the Father in, uh, and the Son in Paul's benediction. At the very end of 2 Corinthians 13, 14, he includes the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Number three, the temple of God is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians three sixteen. Paul says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Holy Spirit dwells within you? Number four, sin against the Holy Spirit. I told you we were going to go quick here. Uh, Sin against the Holy Spirit is sin against God. If you remember in Acts chapter 5, there was a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who sold some land and kept some of the proceeds secretly for themselves and then gave the rest to the church, but they told everybody they gave all the money. And in Acts 5, 3, and 4, Peter confronts Ananias. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some Of the price of the land. Now, that doesn't say much. He just lied to the Holy Spirit. But look at verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to who? To God. To To lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. I, I could keep going, but I hope you get the point. The Bible is very clear. It presents God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are all God, but they're all distinct from one another. They each have different roles. They each work in perfect harmony together. This is why in the very, very first book of the Bible, Genesis 1.26, when God is creating man and woman, he says, let us make man in our own image. In the Tower of Babel, he says, come, let us go down and confuse their languages. God is one, but God is existing as three in one through the triune nature. Number three, God is spirit. In other words, God's true essence is supernatural, not natural. God is spirit, not flesh. This is why the incarnation, Jesus becoming flesh, is such a big deal. God is wrapped in the frailty of human flesh, but God in his natural essence is not flesh, but spirit. Jesus says in John 4:24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. John 3.6, Jesus says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. God by nature is spirit. Number four,
1: James is going to pick up, God is omnipresent. Are you getting this? Are you getting this? Why this is important? Because these are things that confuse people who don't have a holistic view of the Scripture. That's why we do systematic theology. That's right. When you take the doctrine of God and you go, what does the Bible say about God from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Next week, we're going to take the doctrine of Christ. What about Christ in the Old Covenant as well as all the way through the New Covenant? So God is one. I always love the way that I was taught to to say the, the Trinity, that God is one who has revealed himself in three persons. Yep. There is community in the Godhead. But also, God is omniscient. That means He is infinite. The Word says that God is, is everywhere. He's, he's om, omnipresent. I'm sorry. He's omnipresent. He is everywhere. He cannot be bound by time and space. Psalm 139 Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. And you know the rest of the verse. If I go into Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. You see, the God who created all things, listen isn't this, this is a very important distinction, is everywhere in all of creation. But you must be careful that you do not move from that and say, if that's true, then God, creation is God. Mm. See, the Bible says that God is in all of creation, but it never says that creation is God. That is the error of pantheism. That if God is everywhere, then everything is God. So we can worship anything and we're worshiping God. can worship the sun. can worship the moon and the stars. In fact, Paul opens the book of Romans in chapter 1. Uh, Dismissing that concept where he says why they were judged is because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped the creation rather, than, rather the than the creator. You see, creation should lead us to worship to the true creator, but creation is not intended to lead us to worship creation. You get it? He who is infinite and omnipresent always remains distinct from his creation. And what it means is, quite frankly, for us today is that He can be here with us. He can be here with me and He can at the same time be with you and He can be with my brothers and sisters in Africa halfway around the planet right now because God is omnipresent. Got it? But God is also omniscient. It means He knows all things. He's aware of everything. Nothing escapes His notice. Psalm 139 verse 4. Even before there was a word on my tongue... Lord, you know it. Now, folks, that's scary. That's scary. Because even before you say it, the Lord is going, that's not going to work out for you. But then you say it anyway, and it doesn't work out for you. And God says, I told you so. And you say, well, why didn't you stop me? And God says, well, you got to learn somehow. He knows every word before it's even spoken. Not only does he know what's happening now, he knows what will happen in the future. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Galatians 4.4, Paul speaks of the coming of Christ, the birth of Jesus. He said, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. In other words, when everything that God had ordained and that moment in time happened, Mary gave birth to the Savior. He knew exactly when Jesus would be crucified. Acts 2.23 tells us, that he was, Jesus was delivered up according to the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. The crucifixion did not take God by surprise. He appointed it, and He knew exactly the moment it would happen. Right. Guess what, folks? He knows when the second coming and the judgment is going to happen. Now, men and women write books and make lots of money predicting when it's going to happen, but not one of them has ever gotten it right and never will. But God knows... Acts chapter 17 verse 31, the second coming in the judgment, he says, He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Are you getting that? You may not know when the trumpet is going to sound, but God knows when the trumpet's going to sound. You may not know when the dead in Christ are going to rise, but God knows when the dead in Christ are going to rise. You may not know when Jesus is going to descend and take us to be eternally with Him, but make no mistake about it, the Creator God knows. Are you with me? You see, He knows all things and He sees all things. Now, He's not always satisfied with what He sees, but He's never surprised by it. And get this. Because He knows all things, folks. This is what it means for us. He can use all things. Because nothing that happens can derail His plan and His purpose for eternity. And in our lives, God can do incredible things. He can cause a Hebrew baby to be put in a basket in the river. And be raised by in the house of Pharaoh. And then use that very same baby when He is raised to deliver God's people from Egyptian bondage. He can use Joseph... Who rejected and hated by his brothers and left for dead. But then to be raised to power in Egypt for the good of his brothers and the good of God's people. Do you see what God is doing? He is fulfilling all the way through the scripture as he does in our lives. Romans 8.28 For God causes all things to work together for good. What's good? His purpose. To those who? That love him and are called according to his purpose. You see, not all things are good. But because God knows all things, he can use all things for good. Isn't that great? That's the omniscience of God. He knows what's going on in your life right now. It may not be good, but he can use it for good. That's right. And he desires to use it for good. We don't see that good right now, but we always hindsight is always perfect. 2020 when you look back and say, "Thank you, Lord, that I didn't marry that girl." <laughs> I thought my world was going to come to the end, but see, God knows better than you. Or married that guy, let's put it that way. Sixth, God is immutable. Are we making time? We're making tracks here. We're doing it. This means that God is constant, that he is unchanging. He is not capricious. He isn't one way one day, and another way another day tomorrow. One characteristics of the God of Gods of mythology that the of the Greco-Roman world was that their gods were very, very capricious. Their gods loved to play games with mere humans. And and if, you know, if one of their gods happened to get up in a bad mood, then he did bad things that day to people and he played tricks. And and so they they lived in constant fear and they did all these things to try to keep the gods happy so they just wouldn't get ticked off and, and hacked off because they're so capricious. But the Scripture presents the true God of heaven and earth not like that, but He is constant. Hebrews 13, 8. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. James 1.17, that Derek mentioned a moment ago. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above. Who from? Coming down from the Father of lights. What about Him? With whom there is no variation or shifting of shadow. Now I know that some of you say, well, what about when God changes His mind? Well, what about it? What about it? That's not what immutability even means. When God told Moses that he would destroy his people because of their disobedience, Moses interceded. And Exodus 32, 14 says, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing upon his people. His immutability means that his attributes never change. That his nature never changes. That he is never capricious. But he can change his actions by his divine will. He can say to Jonah, I will destroy Nineveh for their evil. But then when Nineveh repents, he can change his actions. And because of his mercy and grace, he can save them. Are you getting this, folks? God is immutable. Number seven, God is good. We say, God is good. That's not just a slogan, folks. That's a theological truth. God is good. It is a part of his character. That he's revealed to us in his word and in Christ Jesus. And his goodness encompasses all those other things that we love to talk about about his grace. We love to talk about his grace, don't we? Mm. About his mercy, about his love. All of those are encompassed in this aspect of the nature and the character of God that He's revealed Himself to us in the Scripture and in Christ Jesus, the living Word of God, of His benevolence toward those who are His. Albert Einstein said that the reason he was not a Christian was because he, he was just too smart for his own good. But he said any being that's great enough to create all things would not take interest in something as small as we are. Now, that was his reason, Einstein said, for not being a Christian. And the scripture says exactly the opposite. Einstein looked at it and said, you know, if he's big enough to do that, he's not going to be messing with little old me. And the scripture says, he created all things for little old me. That's a whole different way of looking at it, isn't it? That's what the scripture... God didn't need creation. He has no need within himself. What he did is... God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We are the apex of His creation. He created everything up until us, ultimately that we may receive it as His gift and enjoy it. He needs nothing, so He didn't need to create, but we do. And all that He created, all that he cre- all, and He created us, this is incredible. He created us able to do things that He doesn't need to do. Now think about that. He has no need. But He created us with all things for our enjoyment. And He created us to be able to do things that He doesn't need to do. And He did it in such a magnificent way. You see, God doesn't have to eat, but we do, right? Yeah, we do. So what has He done? He gave us teeth that can bite, that can cut, that can grind. He gave us salivary glands to soften the food in our mouth so that we can ultimately swallow. You ever tried to swallow something with a dry mouth? You can't get it down. He created us with a peristolic action in the esophagus that moves the food down into our stomach where He put gastric juices to turn it into liquid so the intestinal wall could absorb the nutrients and go into the bloodstream that could be carried all through the entire body. Why? So that the body could be fueled. And what causes that blood to move through the body? an incredibly complex instrument called the heart with valves and chambers and a self-charging action that never needs to be plugged in until you get one of those things that extend your life, okay? But we're talking about how God's created it. Are you getting this? And don't even get me started on the brain, okay? I mean, don't even, we don't even have time To look at how God has done such a good thing to us. He has has given us the capacity in order that we might enjoy his creation to do things that he does not have to do. Mm. All for our good, the scripture says. I remember hearing the story of an anatomy professor who said to his students, he said, I can tell you what every system in the body does and how it does it. But for the answer to why, you have to go to Sunday school. (laughs) For God is good because He is good. It's a part of His nature. It encompasses His love, His grace, and His mercy.
0: That's right. Number eight, God is
1: holy. Oh, no.
0: (laughs) I'm glad we did good before holy. Woo, absolutely. God is holy. This is what the angels are singing in Revelation 4.8. Holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and who is to come? What does it mean to be holy? The Hebrew word uh, is kadosh, Greek. It's hagios. It means literally to cut or separate from the rest. We, we define holiness as set apart to be removed from the whole into a separate category. It means that God is in an altogether... So he
1: was telling the Hebrews to be holy when he said, come out and be separate from the nations. That's exactly right. Calling them to holy. He is calling them to... He is pulling them out from the whole and separating them into
0: a different category because he himself is holy. He is in a different category. He's separate from sin and immorality. He isn't stained by it. In fact, he cannot be in the presence of it. This is why we need a savior this is why we need our sin forgiven. If we ever hope for a chance to stand in the presence of God, something must be done to make us holy so that we can go into his presence. And, and he's been doing this all along. And in, as James just said about Israel, Leviticus 20, 26, he says, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So how were they made holy? God separated them from the nations. Now, how are we made holy in the church today? By faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, our righteousness and what? Holiness and redemption. Christ is our holiness as believers. And this this is an important distinction for us to make. We are, hear me when I say this very clearly, despite what some popular evangelical preachers might tell you, we are not holy by nature. We are you on your own. There's a lot of things that we could use to describe you on your own. Holy is not one of them. All right? Paul says that we are by nature what? Children of wrath. Oh, goodness. Paul says that in our flesh, we are the opposite of holiness. We are the opposite of set apart. Would, it, you, name, would you name some names? I would, I would love to, okay. do, uh, do but, it later. but we don't have time. Email him. He'll give you some of those names Ab- for those preachers. Absolutely. But here's the funny thing about holiness. The funny thing about holiness is that when it comes to ourselves, we'll justify our lack of holiness in our own lives, and we will revile it when it comes to everyone else. <laughs> like We'll make excuses all day long for the things that we do that depart us from holiness, and then we'll tear others down when they do the exact same thing. Yeah. We're the opposite of holy. Holiness makes us nervous. I think more than anything. When we start talking about being a holy person, I'm like, I don't, I don't know that I can really I'm be a really holy sure man. I don't want to do that. Yeah. I like. I was at the store not too long ago, and I was, I was checking out, and the woman was asking me. We are just having a conversation. She said, "So, what do you do for a living?" And I said, "I'm a pastor." And she goes, "Oh, holy man!" <laughs> I was like, "Ah, oh, I don't. I mean, I guess theologically that's fine, but no, I'm not. Not me. Not because of myself." You <laughs> um, got that right. I am not holy on my own. But what about when other people exhibit holiness? Those are the people you want around you, isn't it? People with integrity, people with conviction, people who live their lives honestly, with kindness, who are trustworthy. These are the people you're trying to rally around you to keep in your life. These are the people you want to be friends with. This is one of the reasons why the Scripture talks about the holiness of God as something that is lovely and glorious, Mm. something that we should worship God for, for He is holy. He is set apart. Number nine, God is righteous. God is righteous. The Hebrew here, tzaddik, uh the Greek word dikaios. Righteous means, by definition, something that is just, upright, equitable, or fair. In other words, God is totally, 100% objectively fair. He is not partial to anyone. He does not show favoritism. No one is ranked above other people based on their status or their wealth or their prestige or their power or their success. None of those things matter to God. You cannot impress God. No matter how hard you try, there is nothing you can do to impress God. It reminds me of the the story where God challenges the person, or the person rather challenges God to build a, a sandcastle. He says, God, I can build a bigger sandcastle than you can. And God says, are you sure you want to take me up on that bet? And he says, I'm absolutely sure he says, okay, well, go ahead. And he reaches down and he begins to work the sand. And God says, wait, 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 wait. Use your own sand. <laughs> you can't use my sand you to can't build use, that castle? Absolutely not. There's nothing you can do to impress God because anything you can do has been given to you by God. That's right. So God Amen. treats us, hear this, God treats us not based on our character, but on his. I love in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, it talks about the great white throne of judgment this is at the very end the you last like things yes and in revelation 20 verse 12 it says and i saw the dead this is all anyone who has ever lived i saw the dead the great and the small and the small standing before the throne you know there are two places in the bible where the ground is totally leveled and everyone stands shoulder to shoulder the cross and the throne of judgment That's right and let me give you a truth i thought about this this week i, I like this a lot the cross says, none are too bad to be redeemed. And the throne says, none are too good to be reprieved. Mm. None are too bad to stand before the cross and find redemption. And none are too good to stand before the throne of God and say, you can excuse me. I was, I was okay because you're not. God is righteous. He treats us completely impartially with no favoritism. And finally, number 10,
1: God is omnipotent. It's amazing what we've done this morning, isn't it? In this amount of time. We've, we've nailed wow. it. Wow. <laughs> well, we're not finished yet. I <laughs> might take 30 minutes on this last point. It's true. The 10th, number 10, do I hit a, a drum roll? He is omnipotent. And I saved this to the last purposely. Jeremiah 32, verse 17, cries out to the Lord, the prophet does. And he says, O Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched hand and arms. Nothing is too hard for you. Mark 10, 27, the Scripture confesses all things are possible with God. Now what this means, folks, and we've talked about the omniscience of God, that He knows everything, the omnipresence of God, that He is everywhere, and the omnipotence of God means that there is no limitation to His power. That means He always has the capacity and the ability to accomplish His will. Nothing can fully oppose Him. He has no limitations. But get this. This is very important. God's omnipotence, His all-consuming power, always works in perfect harmony with the other nine characteristics that we have just given you this morning. That He is good, that He is holy, that He is righteous, and all the other things the Bible says He is wise, He is benevolent, all of those things. You see, God's omnipotent power never violates the other aspects of His character. Now, let me tell you why that's important. Can you imagine how scary it would be to give a three-year-old child omnipotent, unlimited power? (laughs) They don't have the wisdom to exercise that power. They've not developed the character and understanding of how to act in certain situations. That's why they do those crazy things. When you're at Walmart, that embarrass you and because they don't understand it. So imagine investing all total power in someone who doesn't have the wisdom and understanding of how to exercise that power for good. Mm. So God's nature and all of these characteristics that we're talking about here, they never... They never contradict one another. God's justice never contradicts His goodness. That's right. God's holiness never contradicts His grace. God's power is never contradicted by anything, and God's power never contradicts everything. Everything in Him works perfectly and systematically in harmony with His total character because ultimately, He is perfect. Hmm. and That means as He has revealed Himself in general revelation, that He has created, that He has created with order, and that He has created all things for the, ultimately for the enjoyment of the apex of His creation, which is us. And that He is holy, He is righteous, He is just, He is good, He is omniscient, He is omnipresent, and He is omnipotent. As for me and my house, we will serve that God. You see, a lot of times Christians say they're serving God, and then when you ask them about what about the God that you serve, he doesn't bear any resemblance to the God who has revealed himself. In creation, in special revelation, in the written word, and in the living word. You see, folks, we need to understand this stuff, because when the Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and says, no, Jesus is not God, Jesus is a created being, you're going to know that's not right. That's not what the Bible that's says. That's what the Bible teaches And when the Mormons come to your door and say, you know, God has a physical body just like you and I do. No, the Spirit. says God is Spirit. You see, this is why systematic theology is important. It not only gives you that desire to bow before Him in adoration and worship because of who He is, but it also protects you from the false teacher and the false prophet who would come like a wolf in sheep's clothes. That's right. And if you've not bowed your heart before Him today, If you've not bowed your heart before His Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ, who provided that blood that covers us with His holiness, you see, that's why we can be holy and we can stand before a holy God, not because I have personal holiness, but because God's holiness covers me in the blood of His precious and His perfect blood of His Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ. Bow down before Him if you haven't. Let's pray. How we bless you and thank you that you have not left us to wonder who you are. That you have revealed yourself in creation. And then you have come specifically to spell it out, to write it down, and ultimately to show all of those characteristics in bodily form that we were able to see, that man was able to touch and feel and then shed blood for us who are none of those things so we can have a relationship with you. Lord, thank you. We praise you. We glorify you. And we honor you today for who you are and what you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen.
0: Amen. Hopefully you took notes the exam will go online Tuesday and uh
1: i have got kidding. the notes out there online. You can go back if you want to use the notes and go back and listen to this. On Then you can write that down. Keep every week in a folder. You will have a simple systematic theology if you, at the end of this series when we finish. That's God right. bless you. Have a great week.